0: Welcome to California Groundbreakers, a place that sets trends, starts movements, and shakes up how things are done around the world. We're inviting interesting people doing innovative things to sit down and talk with us about how they're asking and answering the big questions facing all Californians. Our goal is to inspire change across the state, one conversation at a time. Tonight, we're holding a policy in a pint discussion about California's crazy cannabis market. On the surface, the legal cannabis business looks like the greatest thing since sliced bread to hit California's tax coffers and be a major moneymaker for the Golden State. Unfortunately, it's not. California's cannabis industry is an absolute mess. How could the state miscalculate so badly? A few reasons are given. A ton of regulatory red tape, taxes, taxes and more taxes, anti-cannabis city councils and NIMBY objections, And the black market's not going anywhere. So where do we go from here? What can be done to bring a new high to the cannabis industry and get it back on the track it was projected to run? Join us for a conversation with some pros about how to make sure California's legal cannabis market doesn't go up in smoke.
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome to California Groundbreakers. We're a civic engagement organization focusing on innovators doing groundbreaking things around the state of California. I'm the executive director of Groundbreakers, Vanessa Richardson, and welcome to our great discussion tonight. We are going to be having one of our policy in a pints, and we're actually revisiting a topic that we did, I think, in January of 2017, a couple of months before propositions, I'm sorry, a couple of months after Proposition 64 was passed, which legalized uh, cannabis in California uh, for adult cannabis. And it was, a, it was a great discussion, a lot of questions. And what I remember most about this topic, or about the conversation was, how it seemed like the doors were wide open for anything to happen in California, that there were still a lot of questions about how the state would handle things, how local jurisdictions would handle things. And I also remember there were a lot of questions from aspiring cannabis entrepreneurs and already standing small businesses about how to make their way going forward in the new type of playing field. So it's been one year and nine months later, I believe, a lot has changed, a lot has hasn't. Uh, Still a lot of questions to answer. So when I was reading up on what's going on in the cannabis industry, I read a lot about high taxes, a lot of fees, trouble getting permits. There's NIMBYs on uh, on the cannabis level, on the city and county level. And there's issues with access to financing, uh, access to business training, access to affordable real estate. Sometimes it all goes to grow houses. And um, then there's uh, people who want to enter this industry still have questions about how to make their businesses legally compliant and financially prosperous. So we're here tonight to revisit this topic with a few people who had been there from the beginning, who had been there during and after we passed Proposition 64. And now they're really focused on what's happening in California, the biggest legal market for cannabis in the world, and I guess still the biggest black market for cannabis too. So we're gonna ask them about that post Prop 64 world, what's going on, what needs work. And like last time, if you have questions, if you're uh, going into business or still in business, this is also a great group to ask uh, your questions to. So I want to give, before we start with the panelists, a few special thanks to people who helped make this event possible, Uh, in particular three people. Uh, first off, I want to thank Marco Gizar, who owns Fitzsim Studios, the venue we're at tonight. Um, he actually called and contacted me multiple times to say I want to help California Groundbreakers. I want to be part of the community. And he has been very helpful today in keeping me mellow and out of stress. So thank you very much, Marco, for hosting us. Appreciate it. Also, special thanks to uh, two people named Marta Casado and Pepe Ponseca, they're from Spain. They came here to visit me this week. Little did they know that I was gonna put them to work all day today with food, carrying chairs, and everything. Gracias, a todo, gracias para todos su ayudar. And tomorrow we're going whitewater rafting, so I'm gonna make it up to you. But thank you very much for helping me, Pepe and Marta. So I appreciate it. Also volunteers, can't do it without volunteers, so we have two volunteer extraordinaires, Rodrigo Ramirez, who's been pouring all your drinks, and uh, Nate Graham, sorry, Nate, who's doing audio, so thank you very much. And then we have our suppliers and our supporters, J.E. Paino at Roostaller, Gabriel Ayala at Burley Beverages, I don't think we poured him tonight, I'm sorry, sorry, Gabriel, Uh, but still he's a very big supporter. Mike Rains of Can Can Cocktails, which we are supporting, or which we're offering here. Uh, And then also Caleb Clark at Kickstart Audio, who records the programs and puts them up online as podcasts. Last but not least, the panelists, thank you very much for taking time out of your busy schedule and to you, the audience, for coming. So again, event is 34 minutes, 30 to 40 minutes, sorry, of my questions and then 30 to 40 minutes, hopefully there's time for everyone's questions at the mic. So with the panelists, I let you introduce yourselves. And I always like to ask a personal question related to the topic that we're going to be covering tonight. So starting with the gentleman on my left, I want to ask, what's your name? What's your current role in organization? And for a little more detail about you, give us a quick background about how you came to be in such a cannabis-focused career. Was it expected? Or are you still thinking, oh my god, I never thought I would be working in a cannabis career. So Joe, I'm going to start with you
2: um thank you um for for inviting me here um it's a it's a pleasure my name is Joe Devlin I'm um, currently a senior vice president at Iconic Farms which is a California based um, canna- cannabis lifestyle brand prior to that I was the city's chief of cannabis policy and enforcement for the city of Sacramento um, writing all those regulations and doing all the uh, licensing and enforcement um I kind of ended up in Cannabis. Accidentally, I was working for the mayor and council at the time, Councilmember Jay Schaefer, and this signature gathering effort had started um, for a ballot initiative. And um, I went to him and then Mayor Kevin Johnson and said, "This thing's going to get on the ballot. It's got money behind it. It's going to pass, and it's going to cause headaches for the city." And so I wrote a I wrote a memo and said, "We need to create an office to manage all this stuff and get somebody to do it." Um, And they created the office, and then I applied for the job, and yeah, the rest is history.
1: And we had Jay Chenier on last time on the panel. He was great, so, well, thank you. Next up. So thank you, and
3: I'm very pleased to join my esteemed colleagues, some of whom I've known a little longer than others, but it's a pleasure to be here. I'm Amy Jenkins. I am the Senior Policy Director for the California Cannabis Industry Association, which I've proudly represented since November of 2014. I also have my own lobbying firm, Precision Advocacy. I have 15 cannabis clients, and I'm kind of to the point where I'm deciding whether or not I'm going to keep growing uh, in this field, um, which has been fascinating. It's been a great road. Um, I've been in the public policy space for over 20 years. Um, I'm much older than most of the people here. Um, but (laughs) And cannabis actually does age you quite a bit when you're doing this policy. Um, My foray into cannabis was a bit unconventional. I actually did work for the League of California Cities, which some would argue is the the industry's primary nemesis in Sacramento. And uh, I was approached by some growers back in the day and some city managers, this was 2005. And they said, we have a huge problem, we, we, we've run amok, we don't understand the rules, we don't understand the law, there's this whole distinction between state and federal, um, we have a problem, help us. So I went to the league board of directors, um, very naive in, in, at the time, and said, we need to start a task force and figure out how to better regulate the product and the companies. And They came back to me, they left me out of the room. They said, "Um, this is not a California problem, Amy, this is a Emerald Triangle problem, and told me to leave. So fast forward, nine years, I'm in the Senate as a Chief of Staff, and the League of California Cities came to me and said, we wanna regulate the cannabis industry, would you help us? And I didn't ask my boss, I just said yes, and I decided to beg for forgiveness later, so that began my journey, that was in 2012, and I've been working in the space ever since.
1: And I think I read an article in the Sacramento Bee that profiled you, gave you the nickname, is it Pot Girl? Pot Girl. Pot Girl, pot. girl. all right. Well, welcome Pot Girl.
3: <laughs> Thank you very much. I'm very proud to be the Pot Girl
1: in Sacramento. All right, next up.
4: Hi, everybody. Um, thanks for having me, Vanessa and California Groundbreakers, and I echo Emmy's sentiments that it's great to be up here uh, with all of these panelists. My name is Gabriel Garcia. I am principal at Garcia Law Corporation, a boutique business law firm uh, serving health and wellness clients. I have some changes coming up in the very near future, so if you're curious on those, come find me afterwards. But for now, uh, that's, that's what I'm here. And I'm a lawyer in the space, 15 um, year practicing attorney that about three years ago was doing a lot of um, healthcare work with community health centers across the state. And in that work, you get a license to conduct you know, medical services and, and be a healthcare provider at a specific site. You get that from the Department of Public Health. And there's all kinds of you know regulatory considerations to take into mind when counseling those types of clients that affect their transactions and corporate work and things for their board, et cetera. So that when I saw the first iteration of the MCRSA, just handling medical cannabis, and how it was kind of unfolding that Prop 64 was going on the ballot, they would probably pass, and we'd have a whole adult use component. I said, I, I want to start practicing this, a because I, it's going to be a growth area for the law, and b because like there's no regs yet, so I can learn them from version 1.0 versus say healthcare regs, which could fill this room, and it can be um, it can be intimidating. Like get into that as an attorney, so. I've, I've made the, the transition successfully, and for the past three years, I've moved much of my practice has been doing corporate, regulatory, even some tax advice for uh, you know, businesses in, in the cannabis space, um, some auxiliary hemp and CBD businesses, but, but more focused on those being licensed by uh, local and, and state jurisdictions in, in the California cannabis scene.
1: Thank you. And I should mention Gabriel was one of the panelists we had back in 2017. So welcome aboard again. Thank you. And next up.
5: Hi, I'm, uh, I'm John Oram. I'm president and CEO of NUG. We are a vertically integrated cannabis company based in Oakland. Uh, vertically integrated means, you know, we control the whole process from seed to sale and that means all the way even to retail. So we have retail stores in California. We opened one here in, on 16th Street in Sacramento uh, back in March. Um, please stop by and, and say hi. We'd love to see you. Um, I am a PhD chemist and an engineer by training, and I entered the cannabis space about 12 or 13 years ago uh, looking to build a quality assurance laboratory. And I did. I founded one of the first in the country. It's called CW Analytical, still alive and well and doing very well. Uh, I left that business about three or four years ago to build what is now NUG. I really had. Uh, uh, really was looking to be creative in the space and build really high quality products. So that's what we're focused on. We we make great products, flower products, uh, manufactured goods, and we distribute them all over California and we're really focused on creating those great products and getting them to market in a very efficient manner.
1: Thanks, John. All right, and the lovely lady in the white dress, which I very much like.
6: Thank you. Hi, everyone. I'm very happy to be here tonight. Um, so my name is Kimberly Cargyle. I'm the executive director of a therapeutic alternative, a cannabis dispensary here in the city of Sacramento, and um, also um, sit on the board of CAMIA, a women-owned manufacturing company here in the city of Sacramento. And I've been in the cannabis industry my entire adult life. I went to Humboldt State University and was working my way through college as a yoga instructor and personal fitness trainer, studying cellular molecular biology and pre-med for about five years. And as I started studying more about medical cannabis since I um, became a grower, as everyone I knew that needed to get through college did, um, I realized that the cannabis industry and cannabis patients were repressed and very repressed here in California. Um, back then 20 years ago when you became a medical cannabis patient you gave up rights to your children, rights to your health care, rights to your housing, rights to your education. You basically gave up all rights except the right to remain silent and not consent to a search and ask for a lawyer. And so I started studying a variety of topics related to social justice and spent two more years um, studying sociology and psychology in a variety of groups that have been repressed in this country. And um, graduated from Humboldt State University and moved to Sacramento and became a medical cannabis patients' rights advocate. So I've been organizing patients for about 12 years now and um, continued to stay kind of in the business so that I could be an advocate. Like, every job I've taken, I'm like, I will work for you if I can continue to be an advocate because that's what I'm doing. So I now have eight licensed companies that I've started with employees and I'm hoping to start more and help people come up from, you know, just like I did. I started as a volunteer yoga instructor, worked my way up the front desk and worked my way up. And so um, people work their way up at a therapeutic alternative to ownership. And I'm still an advocate and I'm happy to be here to speak up for women-owned businesses and um, diversity in our industry and last but not least
7: yes thank you thank you my name is Khalil ferguson i'm an executive executive fellow for policy and research at the california urban partnership our mission is to build economic security in the communities of color um i've only been in this for about three months now however my studies in um, undergrad one of my degrees is in economics so i've studied kind of the economic mechanisms of our oppression you know globally and domestically um and malachi kind of picked me up um, about three months ago after um Seeing my rhetoric and seeing my um, analysis of the economic mechanisms upon planning the student walkouts for Stefan Clark and for AB 392. Um, so now I'm kind of, you know, picked up on my research on a lot of EFI, EIFDs, new market tax credits, you know, all of that's kind of economic measures that, you know, I need to pick up on if I'm going to be in this field. Um, so Malachi has had me kind of doing a lot of research extensively, and of course I've had an idea of the wealth gap created by some of the mechanisms that have repressed black people with regards to the sale of marijuana. Um, so now working on the, the equity program domestically and throughout the state, um, you just have me report on policy. So that's my introduction to it. Now it's kind of by accident, but you know it was of intention, I guess. So thank you.
1: Thank you. Thank you all panelists. And yes, just like what Khalil was saying, I was reading up on, on this too. Um, there's a lot going on. So we probably will just scratch the surface for the next hour or so. Um, I'm not sure if we'll be able to cover everything, but I'm gonna try and ask as many questions as I can and try to get as many questions from you before we move on to the mic. I'm gonna start with you, Amy. I think we all kind of gave a summary of how we came in and what challenges we were facing and why we got into the industry. Amy. With you, the CCIA, or California Cannabis Industry Association, did a lot of work getting Proposition 64 passed. I should also mention Nate Bradley, the former, the founder, was on that panel that we did in 2017 and talked about that. In the nearly two years since that happened, just give us a quick summary, if you can, about what's working well in the legal cannabis market. She's laughing. What's working well in the legal, no, about the summary. I know. I put you on the spot. But you did have three days to... Give us a summary of what's working well in the legal cannabis market statewide and what needs work. Just some highlights or some Very, very, very very brief conversation. Very brief conversation. Um, What's working well?
3: Um, Well, what I could tell you, and I'll I'll kind of allow my other colleagues to maybe address this question and other questions. So I'll take it from the legislative standpoint, from the policy standpoint. Um, What's working well is um, five years ago, it was very, very hard to get into the door as a cannabis lobbyist in the legislature. We have 120 legislators in the state capitol. There isn't a single office um, five years later that I can't get into. Um, uh, This is not a partisan issue. This is. Um, this has bipartisan support. We have equal support among Republicans and Democrats. And perception has changed. Um, extremely quickly in the legislature. You don't typically see this. In fact, um, job security is something we consistently joke about in the lobbying world. It's like, oh, well, this is gonna be a 10-year issue, job security. Um, And and yet, at the same time, there is still job security because there are so many outstanding issues. So I think from a perception standpoint, we have we have made tremendous progress in an extremely short period of time. And that extends beyond um, policymakers in Sacramento as challenged as we are at the local level in many jurisdictions. Um, It's a a conversation piece. I am consistently engaging legislators and stakeholders and it is no longer taboo. So I think um, that's been incredibly groundbreaking. Um, The fact that these are businesses and they should be treated like businesses, I think that um, is really beginning to resonate, and I—that is something we have really worked very hard for. Um, on the flip side, there are tremendous challenges left. Um, and again, I don't have all night, but I think what I'll say is um, we talked about enforcement, you alluded to it, and, and, and taxation. I would say the biggest issue right now in the cannabis space is just simply the lack of access. We still have very, very few local jurisdictions actually authorizing commercial cannabis activity, and that I think really perpetuates a lot of the other challenges we see. So high taxes wouldn't be as acute if more jurisdictions opened
1: and how many right now in california allow it we're, we're covering, covering a, at about we're roughly percent about of 30
3: 30 percent, yeah. Thirty percent. Yeah, yeah. So we have 482 counties and 50. Sorry, 482 cities and 58 counties in California, and very, very few are actually authorizing. And so I think what happens is when you talk about again high taxes, enforcement, all of the other issues that uh, are being um, felt by the cannabis industry, I think they would not be as acute if we had more jurisdictions just simply allowing commercial cannabis activity in their communities.
1: Right. And for Joe, for you, the uh, same question. Um, your point of view as a former cannabis chief of Sacramento, um, successes, achievements, obstacles, and things that will probably take some time to establish that you won't be around to do. But uh, yeah, what were the, what, what's been happening with this, in the city of Sacramento per se that has worked and still needs work?
2: Well the city Sacramento I think really been the, the the tip of that spear in terms of um adopting and adaptation um in within the cannabis space um hands down I mean it's hard to believe January 1st, 2018 Sacramento had more adult use uh licensed dispensaries than any city in California right like we are We are a medium sized city in the state, like at best, right? Um, But we had more than Los Angeles. Crazy. Um, But there's. This is—it's a—this is, it's a, it's, this is a, all a process. No, there's there's nothing that's really working well until you push back and look at the the, the macro and all of this. More products are being tested by better labs that continue to get better every day. And CW Analytics is a great lab, by the way. Um, and and so more products are being being tested. Um, the illicit market, I think, is on the retail end beginning to um, shrink a little bit as more cities adopt. But this is gonna be a process and it's gonna take, take years. Los Angeles alone is gonna take 10 years to probably really move towards a, a regulated environment.
1: So I guess in the level of um, up there, getting there, not there yet, where is Sacramento in terms of cities that have embraced or haven't?
2: we were one of the you know we were one of the first ones through that door um, hands down we've had licensed dispensaries in Sacramento since really since 2010 we began that process we started issuing um, actual licenses the process first process took two years Uh, uh, we so 2012 um, but we are still in the process uh when i left of 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 sorting through some uh, 300 applications after having approved uh, 150 cannabis applications so we received over 450 business applications for cannabis permits Um, and not until all of those come on and you know multiply that across the 482 cities is this market going to actually function properly and we, that's one of the things we talk a lot about in our office, actually. Shout out to my um, colleague here, Ryan Cocut, is until until there's enough distributors, until there's enough licensed cultivators, until there's enough retail, which is the real bottleneck, the the market isn't going to function properly. And the illicit market is going to continue to have a wide open space to operate.
1: All right, great. Thank you. Uh, the next question I have uh, for Kimberly and then for John, the two... Two of the business owners that I thought were very interesting with the businesses uh and your and your backgrounds Kimberly I'm going to start with you um running a business in the post prop 64 industry uh you've been in it for so many years what has gotten what, what's your take on it what's gotten better what's gotten worse as a business person what's still too early to tell
6: wow um okay so <laughs> There's so much in that question. I feel your pain now. (laughs) Um, So what's gotten better? Well, the stigma is decreasing. So colleges are asking us to speak. Government officials, local and state, want to talk to us. We're able to advertise in newspapers that said no to me two years ago. Um, you know, people are talking about it. They're sending in their mothers, they're sending in their grandmothers. And so it's slowly starting to g- decrease, which is really nice because it starts to open up doors to banking a little bit, to insurance a little bit, just like push the doors a little more open. Um, it is really intense um, transitioning one business into the regulated market, let alone. Um, you know caring about your community and wanting to help everyone you can transition to the regulated market it's intense and it's been very difficult to watch the industry that I've been a part of for the last 20 years um, go back underground and um, Kind of be stuck there for a number of reasons um, Mostly access to capital because if we all had money we can pretty much do anything um, is what I've learned in the last two years from the people who are really you know more successful It's because they're getting large funding Um, Track and trace is hell, but we're there and we're doing it. We're one of the first to be on board with that. Stayed up like two days straight. Um, Which is what's
1: briefly? What's track and trace? (laughs)
6: Track and trace is um, it's a system that tracks, which is good. I'm all for regulations. I complain about them, but I advocate for them, and they're needed. Like, but it's a system that's not very IT. Like, it's a little behind times, and their training's horrible, and there's, you know, thousands of cannabis businesses. Some are on it, some are transitioning, some aren't on it. You have to print out different things for different people. It's just, like, adds another layer of kind of intensity to the system. And everyone's transitioning right now, so everyone's a little bit crazy about it. It's the new big problem that... It's not a problem, it's a pain point. So Within a month or so, I think that most companies will have transitioned and it'll be easier. Um, You know, the whole legislative process on the local and state level is slow, and um, local governments are slowly coming on board, but it is also difficult when you see people who ran good businesses and want to get their permit and get their state license, and they can't. Because, um, you know, the local government is not permitting or is taking years to write an ordinance or a permitting process. So I should not talk about the pain points because they are my list is very long. So I'm going to focus on the positive. We are moving forward. And a few years ago, we weren't. We were, like, stuck. So
1: I do have a question, though, a follow-up question about funding and access to funding. Because I think I read in a Sacramento Business Journal profile of you, towards the end of the profile um, you've done so well you have eight businesses but i think for Kemia, Kemia, is that am i saying it right you were saying that it was still hard to find funding for it and i was wondering if that was because still to get funding for cannabis businesses um or you're a woman or you're not experienced enough do you have any idea why funding would be hard because i found that interesting
6: um yeah so Another loaded question. I have so much to say. I'm like, how do I, you know, and break we can this uh, down? We're, we're gonna address that so, too. But I yeah. just was
1: wondering if there was just briefly something that you thought might be um, something. This that is a whole topic. I'd highly recommend okay. you have a panel oh, about multi segment. Yeah. yeah.
6: <laughs> but funding is difficult for a variety of groups of people. And women is one of them. So, for instance, all of the businesses I've started so far are friends and family funding, requiring a few hundred thousand dollars. Kamiya's funding is a manufacturing company and it requires millions of dollars, so I need venture capital. And very little venture capital, um, about 7% goes to um, women-owned businesses. Out of all the venture capital firms in California, only 11% have women on their board and are funding women. Um, It gets even worse for women women of color, like down to like 2%. And so the diversity in our industry is changing drastically right now because everybody can 't get funding it 's not an even playing field right now.
1: all right, John. I have a similar question for you. I don 't mean to put you on the spot uh, about that. You're based in Oakland and which is a groundbreaker in cannabis regulation, and you I thought it was very interesting your story, how involved you are with how Oakland is is doing things. And you also, you got funding, 15 million in funding earlier this year. Um, and then you opened your retail store here in Sacramento. It sounds, it sounds like things are going great, but I just wanted to see too, you know, a similar question for Kimberly. Um, what's, what's good, what's bad about running a business? Is there anything about being based in the Bay Area that helps or hinders? Um, and also I think in general like California, Help, does it help or hinder us uh, aspiring entrepreneurs in cannabis to be here? And I ask this because, again, researching the story, there were a couple of very opinionated op eds and opinionated stories about how California is a mess. And a lot of businesses are moving out of state or just saying, we're not going to try here. It's just too expensive. You know, this, the typical stuff with Bay Area it's expensive, um, there's not enough people, a lack of access. So, from your viewpoint in the Bay Area and as a business person, a similar question: What works? What doesn't?
5: Um, well, uh, <laughs> we're in—we're definitely in a perfect storm, um, and, and there's been a lot of unintended consequences of the way Prop 64 is rolling out. One is the fact that actually only the well-capitalized capitalized are surviving right now. So you've got to find money if you want to survive, um, and we did find money. It's not enough. It's not enough. I mean, companies like myself are going out constantly. We now have departments that do nothing but full-time fundraising just to keep our lights on. This isn't to build profit. This is to invest for the future. Uh, So that is an unintended consequence of PROC 64, which wanted to keep more mom and pops in business. Uh, I would say of all the places to do cannabis business today, I would choose Oakland and Sacramento, and I have chosen chosen Oakland and Sacramento. Those are both uh, thought leaders in the space and have had regulations on the books for quite a long time. And to kind of put a, a fine point on that, you know, you talk about how other cities uh, you know there's only only 25 or 30 percent of municipalities actually have regulations on the books and some of those uh, and and some of the ones that that are you know in the 80 percent that don't have books they're thinking about it now and they're starting from the very beginning and they're trying to recreate this wheel which is crazy and another conversation but if you think about Oakland and Sacramento they're tackling much different problems they're tackling problems about how do you address a change of ownership how do you uh, how do you address small details about land use how do you move a facility from one location to the next how do you address parking and traffic concerns so those are all very mature questions that other cities aren't even thinking about yet other cities are thinking about how crazy are we for e- for allowing cannabis in our in our in our cities? And uh, you know, is the sky falling? And uh, you know, are, are, you know is, you know it's the devil's weed? Those conversations are still happening in California, um, so that sort of sets the landscape. And also to put some other points, we talked about the you know the constriction of the California marketplace, and people say, oh, there's just no access to cannabis. Uh, To put some data on that, in 2017, around December of 2017, there was about 2,500, maybe 3,000 retail outlets in the state of California. Overnight, January 1st, 2018, there's only 250. 250 retail stores across the state I mean, business just dropped off a cliff and, again, setting up the scenario where only the well capitalized are surviving. That's slowly growing now. There's about maybe 550 stores across the state, Um, but that's not near enough. We still need to grow probably 10 times that. so there's just so many challenges in the way the rules have, have been rolled out and the two-tiered system is not making it, uh, the two-tiered system of having to have local approval and then uh, state approval, it's not making things any easier. It's really not. But again, the, the more progressive cities and the cities that got ahead of this curve, like like Oakland and Sacramento, again, are tackling different issues. And one that is near and dear to, to a lot of people here is is the social justice issue. So Oakland was actually where the social justice Justice movement started in cannabis, Sacramento right behind it, and picking it up very aggressively. And it was not so in Oakland. We we tackled this issue about two or three years ago, and it was not a very easy conversation. It was, um, it, you know, it was a conversation that we had to have, but it was not easy. And there was, you know, a. It was very difficult to to find common ground, but eventually the industry and policy makers and the community did find common ground in Oakland. And what my group is doing uh, and and helped lead in Oakland is we developed an incubator program, and it's actually being emulated uh, throughout the state now. So we incubate six different uh, equity qualified, social justice qualified groups and we give them each a a very nice, very sophisticated, high-tech greenhouse. Uh, Light deprivation systems, light augmentation systems. These are very nice uh, greenhouses. And they get those greenhouses for three years and they get to operate there rent-free. And and it's not, we don't just give them the space and throw them in there and say, good luck. We actually uh, have on-the-job training programs We're teaching them how to cultivate their cannabis we're teaching them how to package their cannabis and get it to market and we actually provide a lot of those ancillary services for them so uh, it's it's first of its kind Uh, we're only well we've been working on this for a long time we're just been implementing it and actually operating under this principle for about uh, eight months nine months now and it's it's going well Um, there's a i have a lot of pride in the program and uh, i can't wait actually for some of uh, our incubatees to actually replace me here uh, you know, I mean, the joke is, uh, you know, how many white businessmen does it take to give a talk on cannabis and social justice? I don't want to be the butt of that joke. I really want to empower the people that we are uh, putting in business to sit here in my place. So hopefully in the future that will happen.
1: Well, thanks, John. All right, Khalil, question for you. Um, because I, I was gonna ask this for Malachi and you're gonna step in, but the California Urban Partnership steered and got the city of Sacramento to approve a program called CORE, Cannabis Opportunity Reinvestment Equity, thank you. And I was wondering, I mean obviously Oakland was one of the pioneers and now Sacramento is following in its footsteps. There was a story again recently when I was researching in the Chronicle about Oakland's program. And I guess it's about two years or so that it's been in place. Uh, it's receiving some mixed reviews, like I guess just like in general the industry is. Long wait times for permits, a lack of good partners to uh, team up with, a lack of funding and business training. That's what a lot of quotes were. So for this program to succeed, what, what do you believe is needed uh, to get people um, the, the funding, the access, the training, that they need to be financially successful, and and how could how do you, if you want to emulate something in Oakland's program, what do you see in there, and how will it be different and one of a kind here?
7: Well, yeah, the funding the funding is really a big part. Um, recently, the core program was allocated a million dollars for two years, uh, managed with the Greater Sacramento Urban League. However, even still, even with priority. Um, um, Processing when it comes to B, uh, BOPs and CUPs through the City of Sacramento, they're still still having delays.
1: And what are BOPs? I'm sorry, CUPs? business
7: operating permits and conditional use permits for land. Um, those are still being backed up as well, um, just because of lack of funding and lack of adequate funding to help this process uh, flow uh, efficiently and maximize their efficacy. Um, Forgot the other questions, um, but yes, with regards to the core with the core program. We've um, even working with California partnership. That's kind of what we're doing is bridging the gap for some of the core participants to get to the landowners and some of these um, commercial real estate owners um, to help them facilitate and get to the equity program to kind of um, a little similar to how uh, it's ran in Oakland to get them you know, a little discounted or free land to be able to have incubator spaces to build their business, whether it be manufacturing, um, distribution, delivery, or even you know, when the time comes, hopefully storefronts. Um, so things that do need to be really um, improved are really funding for these operations and funding to get these um, cons- business consultancy, these um, legal legal fees, that's really the biggest things um, um, that are uh, prolific throughout this program and throughout that's affecting a lot of business owners who don't have the capital um, and kind of resource in de- a capital destitute kind of environment. So that's really the biggest thing that we, we need is increased funding and increased capital and access to capital, which is kind of a problem throughout all the dispensaries throughout California and especially in a community like um, people of color and the black community who have been affected by the war on drugs, who obviously we have a wealth gap problem. So, you know, there isn't even, even capital to reach out to with regards to starting a, even a mom-and-pop shop, so.
1: And for the program, is it a mix of, or maybe intended down the road, a mix of... Uh, Public and private sector partnership. You know, obviously, the city of Sacramento will be on board, but also getting the private sector more on board. Is that? No,
7: definitely, p- definitely. So the, the the people who are involved, who own the land, it's not government-owned land, so it's private-owned land, and you know, their incentive for them is to get those CUPS and the B, the BOPs. Priority as well, but also if we're regarding um, doing social justice social justice initiatives, um, then addressing the effect of the war on drugs on communities of color, specifically in Sacramento, um, through research through the public health advocates who have done research on uh, arrests, specifically in communities of color, um, and how they disproportionately were affected with regards to selling marijuana. So, we're talking about a social justice, social justice initiative and they want to tackle that or be, you know, aid in that, then the incentive is, the incentive, uh, is to work with the core program to gar- grant these participants land, you know, to help incubate them as well.
1: Okay. I want to see a show of hands. Are there people who are aspiring entrepreneurs in the cannabis industry or have businesses or just interested? All right, a couple hands for, all right, all right. Okay, so there's a few, but um, I know for the last, again, I mentioned in the last panel discussion, there were a lot of people uh, that we had talking or asking questions about uh, how do I get into this business? What do I need to know? Legal compliance questions, specific things like that. And that's where our last panelist, I'm gonna ask a question to Gabriel, had a lot of, or at least some answers, maybe not, they weren't all just determined at that time. So Gabriel, um, you know, having counsel clients in the cannabis industry for the past few years What are the top concerns, I guess, that they have or should have and issues that for those who want to get into this business or starting it, legal compliance and, you know, making a profit, what should they be mindful about right now? Just a few highlights.
4: Sure. Um, You know, I think we're hearing a lot of the talk about the access to capital and it's creating, um, I'm seeing either the sort of three buckets, um, the well-capitalized cannabis businesses that. Uh, are doing well and continue to to get ahead because having those resources gives you the ability to to, whether it you know economies of scale we know what that can do for competition and so that's you know making those businesses excel okay then there are those who have been in it haven't had access to, to capital and are having to make a decision about do they sort of team up into an incubator, incubator model or some model where they can retain creative control of their brands and maybe keep their team together, but then outsource or joint venture some of the means of production to somebody else as a way of staying alive, but without needing all of the same capital costs that you would need to continue to maintain, you know, producing your product, sales, marketing, branding, all of it, distribution from top to bottom. And then there are those that, that remain small and are going to run. I just told a client this the other day. I said, you're like trying to beat Super Mario Brothers as just the little Mario. And like you don't get the mushroom and you don't get the fireball or the invincible star. You're just this little guy and it can be done. But it, it, how how much harder is it? Um, it is much harder. He and others he you know are kind of going into that craft model. He's a cultivator and he's known for a particular strain and people love it and it sells out. So he's thinking, if I don't want to do that model and I'm not out trying to raise 15 million or whatever million, how do I stay alive? And maybe it's committing to that craft, at least branding that, that craft and having, you know, there's Anheuser-Busch and then there's all these amazing craft brews here in Sacramento. Can he somehow do that from, from the outset? Um, so he and, and many others in his situation are are kind of having to tackle that now that you're seeing more deal flow consolidation and these bigger haves and have nots starting to take and develop in the market.
1: All right, so now I'm going to ask people to line up at the mic. And I do have uh, one question before we have our next, our first audience question, and that's about what's going on legislative wise. Uh, We're still, I think our legislative session ends uh, in a couple weeks and it seems like there's a few bills that are going through uh, That might have something to do with cannabis So I was wondering in terms of cannabis industry cannabis specific bills that we should be paying attention to whether we're uh, consumers business owners um, what have you what are you all looking at in terms of legislate legislation that you want to get passed that you don't want to get passed that would be a benefit or not so i'm just particularly you know curious to see you know a few bills that you're all looking at and um we should be looking at too. i i'm going to start with amy and then if there's anyone else who wants to uh give their legislative bills, feel free. So I'm gonna put you on the spot, Amy, first. No, that this is what I live and breathe on
3: a daily basis, so I appreciate the question. Um, right now, we um, I don't know the exact number of bills that are left, but what I can tell you is over the last few years we've seen um, I think the busiest year was in 2017 we saw over 60 bills that dropped a little bit last year we had a little bit under 60 this year Um, a lot of them have gone away through the course of the legislative cycle and as you noted the the, the legislature gavels down on September thirteenth, and I can hardly wait. Um, <laughs> so, uh, but there are there are some bills that are still active, um, things that we're watching very closely. Um, I had some conversations before we began the panel today. Um, one of the big policy issues that's being deliberated is around hemp, and the regulation of hemp. and And do you regulate it as kind of a parallel product, or do you do you fold it into the um, what we call the macursa framework or the medicinal adult use, um, Cannabis Regulation and Safety Act. Um, That has been a huge discussion point and there's been a lot of debates going on. I've had ongoing meetings with the governor's office about how we effectively regulate hemp in a manner that ensures that the cannabis industry is still able to to remain competitive. There's a lot of differing opinions about how that policy should work. Um, If I was uh, taking bets tonight, I'd say we will be continuing to deliberate that through the fall, Um, so that's that's a big policy discussion. There are a number of bills around compassionate care. Um, There is actually a compassionate care bill that allows for the uh, donation of cannabis products so we can support compassionate care programs for low-income medicinal patients. As my colleague Eddie Franco could tell you who's in the audience, that has been um, a very, very challenging discussion um, because it results in a, a drop in, in tax revenue. There's bills that a bill that would allow uh, cannabis use in hospitals for terminally ill patients. There's a bill that would allow um, the provision of cannabis for uh, young people, for youth, um, by their parents with permission from the school um, who are suffering from various ailments like seizures and such. Um, there's a lot of bills around social equity. There is a bill that would reduce or eliminate the fees for social equity applicants. So a lot of work in the next couple of weeks, and there's a rumored trailer bill that um, I've been talking about all day. So I think there's still a lot to be done in the last three weeks, and I'm sure there's a lot of opinions and priorities among this group, so I'll defer.
1: And if the bills get to uh, Governor Newsom's desk, uh, how what's his office's stance on the cannabis industry? Support, or it depends, let's wait and see? You know, it, the, the Newsom administration has
3: indicated from the onset that um, the rollout of the medicinal and adult use framework will take time, five to seven years. Um, I think the administration has taken um, a cautious approach and is kind of looking at all these bills while recognizing that, um, you know, this, this framework is not going to be, um, you know, well established and and the best it can be overnight. So I think they're looking at everything in a very thoughtful way um, The governor has certainly expressed support for the industry in the past and um, we continue to engage in negotiations with him um, but I think he's taking um, kind of a thoughtful approach to everything as it moves forward and um, Ultimately he has until mid-october to sign bills. So I think uh, we'll have to wait and see Khalil
7: um, well the California Urban partnership um, was instrumental in influencing additional $10 million from the state budget to go to equity programs, which has been re- renegotiated right now, and we're appealing for $30 million um, from the state budget, um, which $15 million will come from Prop 64 um, and different measures of that, and then another 15 from the general fund. Um, additionally, on the federal level, I've been tracking um, a few bills, um, in particular um, House Resolution 1585, and this is to address some of our capital needs with regards to federal legislation. Um, and federal banking, as we know, with regards to capital, we can't have loans support marijuana businesses or bank accounts supporting cannabis businesses. Um, and, you know, bipartisanly, we've seen legislators support the uh, access to capital on the federal level, kind of the decriminalization of marijuana in that way. Because it's a cash-only kind of um, market, they're seeing increased risk and public safety risks with regards to storing cash. So with that being said, the, House, the H.R. Uh, 1585 is called the Safe Banking Act. Um, and it seeks to allow marijuana businesses federally to gain access to um, capital via the banks. However, the discourse around it is still regulating where that cash is coming from. Um, I've just watched some of the, um, the Senate Banking Committee um, just videos, and they say the biggest thing is really not knowing where that cash come from and not really supporting cartel, the cartel. Um, but still, there is a talk around decriminalizing marijuana on the federal level so that way we get, that way we get access to capital on, um, from federal legislation and we begin to decriminalize that. Um, so that's one of the biggest things I've been watching, um, as well as from you know using, uh, having working at Wells Fargo and seeing from the inside why we didn't take cash deposits. Um, but yes, yeah, so it's kind of that's changing the the rhetoric around marijuana federally, um, and we're seeing that kind of change in this you know as I say the uh, the the rhetoric around marijuana and marijuana sales. So um, federally, that's the biggest thing I think we should uh, talk about. Also, I'm sorry, um, with regards to the Recent um, budget bill that was passed in the federal legislation, um, they included some support for veterans as well um, with regards to access to capital if they were in the marijuana market. Previously, they weren't you know, able to get a subsidized mortgage package if they were in the marijuana market, but now it's kind of ch- changing with the changing um, rhetoric regarding marijuana. So different federal legislation around that is something to be on the lookout for.
1: And Gabriel, did you want to add something? Yeah, just
4: really, I, I think it's interesting to learn from defeats, and AB 286 was a bill to like lower the state taxes, and it did not, even though we have a generally fairly friendly legislature toward the cannabis business, they weren't going to move on that, which means it didn't have the political will. So what I kind of take from that is the state taxes aren't going to go down no matter how much the industry hates them, so it's going to be about the getting some economies of scale or operating efficiently or operating within that framework Maybe you can lobby your locals to knock down if you can your local rate to at least reduce the your overall effective tax rate but it feels like it feels like the legislature was anticipating more of a, a tax windfall and then it's been woefully short and they're kind of begrudgingly like look at the stoners can't generate the tax revenue for us and so why would we give them a, a break and 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 286 died? But I'm, I'm sure Amy knows better than me but that was what I kind of read. We're in for it on, on the state taxes so let's work around we it. We have to live with
1: them. Probably, yeah. All right, next question, first question at the mic.
8: Hi, good evening. My name is Tiffany Sharp. I'm an attorney here in Sacramento, and I work with underrepresented communities, uh, particularly women of color, and starting to work with women of color in the in the cannabis industry. So I had a question, but I wanted to um, just maybe put an ask out there that we stop calling it the black market. Uh, In 2004, the United States incarcerated more black men under marijuana prohibition than 1993 apartheid. And so calling it the black market still conjures up a lot of um, issues surrounding equity that I think we need to address and and, and I think uh, starting with the name is is a good way to do it. The illicit market which uh, uh, Mr. Devon indicated uh, is a good way underground market. Uh, With that being said, I actually had a a question regarding maybe for the policy couch as I've named it in my notes. Um, Colorado uh, in 2018 um, had record profits from their legal cannabis market. Um, also in 2018, they put an equity initiative in where they significantly reduced the licensing fees for equity candidates to, uh, I mean, just a few thousand dollars would be the highest. And in, even with that, they um, exceeded their projected revenue by, you know, projections are still coming in, but at least over 15, you know, by 15 times at this point, um, or 15%. And so my question is, is, is for the policy couch, but, but for anyone, um, particularly when we're talking about the high, uh, the high fees and we're, we're, we're trying to infuse equity in this. Is there a lesson to be learned from Oregon about um, equity and reducing the fees and still making record profits from the tax revenue? And I'll take my answer on the chair. Thank you.
1: Who would like to start? Oh, I'm gonna, actually going to start on my left and see who raises their mic. Joe.
2: So, cannabis is the most complicated public policy that there is hands down, it's a spider web. and that's a. Bit, a the short answer is it's very complicated. Um, I think Colorado had more success with taxation, um, in part because they didn't really have a cannabis industry before. I mean, you rewind probably, the stat I heard was like 2010, you know, 90s, early 2000s. Uh, the Emerald Triangle, Trinity, Humboldt, Mendocino grew some ridiculous percentage of the cannabis consumed in the United States, like 80% of it. So if you were smoking weed in the United States, it came from three counties in California. Um, So when their industry started, it was really starting from the ground up. Ours is transitioning. Um, uh, We do need to lower fees. I think we do need to lower uh, taxes, um, but it also, I think the diversity and equity piece keeps circling back to, to, to capital um, and, and, access, and access to it.
1: Amy.
3: Sure, um, so I, I did allude to a bill that I think is important for you to track and it's SB 595 by Senator Bradford. He has been really one of the pioneers in the state senate around social equity programming. He started the Social Equity um, Act or authored it last year. Um, the state is funded to the tune of 40 million. Um, so, it's one of the biggest investments that the state has, has made is in social equity program, but specifically SB 595 would again waive um, the licensing fees and other fees associated with starting businesses if you are a social equity applicant. So, I think it's a it's an important step um, and I think uh, that bill is, is continuing to move. Um, so it's definitely one that I think you should watch. Um, the other thing I'll just say is that I've been very encouraged at the level of investment that the legislature has made made in social equity, as well as the administration. Um, It's not enough, um, but when I am in the midst of of budget negotiations, as I've been um, for a number of of months now, uh, the social equity piece has been central to a lot of those debates. And then just from a broader taxation issue, because that affects all of industry, but it certainly affects those that are trying to get into the business, one thing I'd note is that the legislative analyst, is actually very important, the, the legislative analyst, which is a nonpartisan, Um, body that um, provides guidance to the legislature is putting out a report and this report will be coming out no later than January 1, 2020 on the state's current tax structure and we'll be making recommendations and I can tell you as a lobbyist I can't wait because as soon as that comes out I am assuming there is going to be a lot of favorable um, analysis and thought into our tax structure and whatever those recommendations look like assuming they're favorable to our industry I'm putting that language right into our state's legislative council and we'll be running a bill um, but I think that's a really important piece to notice I think there's a lot of sensitivity around the current tax structure which affects everybody but it, social equity applicants in particular and so we're I think all eyes are on that report and actually that's one of the reasons that we are being told um, 286 was held as they're waiting for that report and so um, it's something that we're, we're all bracing ourselves for and looking forward to
1: Kimberly
6: or John or Khalil, next couch. Kimberly. Um, So I was just thinking about something. I'm wondering if the projections from the state were based on the fact of how many companies were currently operating when they made the projections. Because there were way more companies in operation. Our industry was much bigger because it was all one industry. Now it's split into two. We have the unregulated and untaxed industry and the taxed and regulated industry. And this is only, you know, 30% of California is currently permitting. So um, I think that's why we fell short of our quota. We have 70% of our industry stuck in the unregulated market not paying taxes. So, mm -hmm. maybe we should line those two up.
1: All right, John and then Gabriel. Okay, John.
5: Uh, so you, you're asking, uh, you know, what can policymakers do to, to help to grease the wheels for, um, well, what for and what lessons can we learn? Okay. Oh So you're suggesting as one option uh, or questioning one option about reducing fees and, and helping uh, 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 social justice uh, applicants m- make it easier for them to obtain their licenses. I think that's a great idea, but that's just the tip of the iceberg. To be totally honest, in that in that instance, you're talking about tens of thousands of dollars. That's a drop in the bucket that it's going to require to start a business. Uh, so what really needs to happen is the the state or the the regulators need to start in encouraging joint ventures and partnerships between existing businesses and new businesses. And they shouldn't beat the existing uh, businesses with a stick. They should entice them with a carrot. And they should for for example, if a business invests a million dollars to help us, uh, you know, develop a social justice program, well, they maybe they should get some tax credits uh, with the city for for, for that million dollars, uh, or with the state for that million dollars. That would be great. I mean, I'm spending that kind of money now is supporting our program and I don't get any credits for it. So that would that would help, I think, entice a lot of other businesses. Also, I think uh, encouraging businesses to offer more than just um, Than just meeting the the, the 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 criteria on a piece of paper, but actually living up more to the intent. And what I mean by that is, uh, if if let's say I'll use the example of city of Oakland, uh, as, in order to qualify as an incubator, you're supposed to give a minimum a, a thousand square feet rent free for three years. And some people are giving spaces that are literally just chalked out a thousand square feet. Here it is. See you later. You can do what you want. Um, that. That should be frowned. It is frowned upon. It should be frowned upon, and it should be much more of uh, looking at the quality of the space, encouraging partnerships where there's a, a you know cross-training and job placement from the parent organization into the incubated uh, organization. I think there's a lot of work we can do, and we can achieve you know great results if we're enticed into those kind of scenarios rather than be you know into submission, so to speak.
1: All right, Gabriel, you're next.
4: Sure. Um, I just thought I'd tie this up because i uh, tie this into something that clients have been asking about, which is benefit corporations and certified B Corps. And as an attorney, I encourage you to, to read up on it because I, I think there's a real opportunity that that ethos not only fits with the cannabis industry, but its whole mission is to craft a, a corporation with, with founders and with articles that talks about social justice or environmental justice, diversity, the things that we're talking about right now, the things that are important to equity applicants and guarantees when they form that company, if they do get the break on the, on the fees and, and they move forward with it, but that mission will, will endure. And I think there's a way that if we have more of them out there that you can show, because they they're like a for-profit with a nonprofit bent that you could have local and state legislators be willing to give some tax breaks to the companies that have committed to the social uh, causes that benefit corporations espouse to because it's a way that they are contributing not only to the economy and and jobs and the right kinds of jobs to the right kinds of communities, they should be rewarded in small measure um, with perhaps tax credits or something like that. So I think that'd be interesting to work with. Amy on that one day, but um, that's an idea I have and I'm sort of spreading it and it can
7: tie into um, to the way we achieve some of these equity goals.
1: Okay, final person on the couch.
7: Um, I think I was, as was said earlier, like you have to compare the propensities between um, you know different kind of states. California is much bigger and we already had a kind of a, not necessarily regulated cannabis market prior to Prop 64 passing. Um, like like was said earlier, only 30% of the market is engaging really um, in legal cannabis um, taxation and even legal cannabis um, revenue. Um, so with that being said, I think that the state and local municipal- municipalities need to help augment some of these underground um, markets into the legal market if we are to increase some of our um, projections. And even from an economic standpoint, which is what I got one of my degrees in, it's really hard to kind of gauge really over a time span of farther than a year what metrics will be and what kind of um, – uh, just, just gauge what the market will be, especially with volatility such as California with regards to how many people are engaging with the market. We have a lot of high bi- barriers for entry, um, so how do we really overcome those, and how do we really reduce those barriers for entry with regards to the free market? So it's a little hard to just say um, equity, 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 sometimes even though we want to do that, but even when we provide equity, and provide legal counseling, legal support, and business consulting support, that access to capital, which is still being regulated federally, and even being, you know, um, hard to get to for people who have the capital already, Um, is something that we need to overcome and that's just something that's easy to be said how do we learn from a different kind of market that may not have had the same structural and regulation that California has had and the same history California has had and the same diversity California has had with regards to marijuana sales um, and the underground market so um, I think we need to do better as was said to engage the underground market and increase that percent of 30 percent to at least 65 percent engaging in the legal market before we can even um, assume kind of accurate um, metrics with regards to you know, what we can increase for revenue for California. So something to think about.
1: All right, next question at the mic, please.
2: Yeah, um, I just want to thank Vanessa. These are always interesting discussions, California Groundbreakers. And for me, the real eye-opener was the fact that having voted for Prop 64 a number of years ago, I figured that we'd have this big tax revenue coming into the state, and because we legalized it, the the illicit market would start to disappear, but it doesn't really sound like either one of those has happened. So I guess my real question for all of you on the policy couch and the economics couch is, how do you convert the illicit market into the legal market to solve that problem? And what would be your your uh, the top of your wish list? And, and and second to that, do we have a in California a person? at the state level that's responsible for administering all these programs.
1: I think she was on our panel last uh, time around. Uh, well, one of them anyway, but, uh, I, and I wanna add on to that, uh, Dylan, thank you, because it ties into, I think one of the reasons is, NIMBYism in canna- cannabis industry. Amy had mentioned only 30% of cities and counties um, um, allow legal marijuana sales. And I was wondering, like, is that a big deal and can you change their minds? Is, are you trying to persuade them to change their minds? Or as Kilo mentioned, like have them work with um, uh, cannabis companies on the illicit market to bring them uh, into the legal market? You know? So yeah, I just wanted to add on to that the nimbyism. Is that a big problem uh, pertaining to the two markets? Who would like to start? We can go, actually, we can go the other way around. So <laughs> <laughs> Killil, you'll start
7: I think the biggest thing we can do um, besides engaging the you know underground market is really trying to reduce the barriers for entry right now if we look at for at least manufacturing and cultivating it's at least a million dollars for a startup right now um, who really has it it's even higher oh my goodness um, so if you have that capital at hand and who has that capital at hand that's pocket change to venture capitalists but like I said if, you know if we're engaging you know um, women of color business of color, and even just women in general, that's 11% and below. So who was benefiting from a market that's been, you know, at least from the California Urban Partnership stance, if we're talking about social justice and equity, um, black people have, di- have been arrested at disproportionate rates for selling marijuana. Um, and currently there are still a lot of people of color who are engaged in the underground market. So how do we get them to incentivize them and reduce the taxes, reduce the barriers for entry to allow them to get into the legal market so they can become proficient and um, prolific within this market that they have been so long um, – Persecuted for essentially, Um, so the biggest thing economically, I would say, is we need to reduce the barriers for entry and find a way to incentivize, or like I said, you know, through tax credits, um, incentivize some of these venture or these businesses who are already operating to work with other people um, to get into the market, so way we can increase efficacy of the market and we can you know increase tax revenue for the state of California. So,
6: Kimberly, so um, Tiffany, thank you so much for bringing up the black market versus white market. That's one of my biggest pet peeves. And I would even take it a step further it's not even an illicit market it's just unregulated that was our market and when people are like oh we need to turn them in they're competing with us I'm like That was you two years ago. (laughs) Like, we need to transition everyone just because they can't get a local permit or they can't get financing. They are entrepreneurs. And they are doing business like they've been doing business. They are not criminals. They are not the people robbing us and burglarizing us. They are not illicit. They are actually just wanting to get regulated. They just can't. And so um, the two main things that are holding our industry back is financing or, you know, we can't get financing, we don't have banking, Um, funding. Funding is the word. I have like a love-hate relationship with funding, so it's it's really holding me back. But um, number one, and then number two, local government. Like if we can't have a local permit, we can't get a state license. And so um, if we can work really hard on those two things, we can transition our really amazing diverse industry of small businesses that has got us to where we are. We can transition them successfully, and without those two things, we can't. John?
5: Sure there there's a there's a twisted web here and we need to be uh, I think careful with how we speak about this there's one there's the the, the base assumption that the illicit market wants to transition into a, a regulated market in many cases that's not true the other is you no know, we're not explicitly saying this but in how we talk um, and we're talking about uh, lifting people of color and providing opportunity at the same time we're talking about the illicit market when those two are completely unrelated there's no there should be no link between us saying that it's people of color need, uh, I'm sorry, that people of color are in fact the uh, illicit market and we need to transition them. Those are different populations and different conversations, so we need to be careful about how we talk about that. And also, I think that the industry as a whole needs to take some responsibility for the state of of things right now. And what I mean there is that we have uh, an alphabet soup and a very mixed bag of regulations and a very hodgepodge approach that's not solely, but largely, because we have a very mixed bag of industry uh, associations. We do not have very strong ties and a very strong coordination within the industry. So the industry is not speaking at, as one voice. And until we do that, we are going to be getting quite a bit of pushback from regulators. And we really uh, we're fighting a much a much more uphill battle. So I I do encourage the industry as a whole to to come together, speak on one voice uh, where we can. For example, uh, taxes. Uh, for example, um, uh, ease, uh, increasing the access to cannabis, and, and one way of doing that would be uh, maybe forcing the local municipalities where voters approved uh, legal cannabis by more than 60%. Well, hey, they should have regulations on the books; otherwise, they're not upholding the will of the voters in their in their municipality. So, um, you know, we have a lot of work to do, and I really don't think that we're going to get very far unless we all organize and speak a common common language
1: all right moving on to the other couch anyone want to address the the two markets gabriel Uh,
4: i'll just say that i think we should move hard I, i think there's two illicit markets there's the unregulated which are the people that want to get in and for barriers to entry are not and yet that's how they make a living and That's one bucket. Then there is like the illicit bad guys. Like if you are growing on federal or state land, if you're a cartel, if you're using child labor, if you are even on private land, but polluting public waterways, I think we should just move hard against you. And I know that you're in cannabis, but we've got to get rid of horrible actors like that um, so that we can just have fewer of them and fewer incentive for that to be a means of production for for gangs or people that want to pollute the environment. It's the other ones that I I hear that and they're not in the same bucket, even though neither of them have licenses. So that's how I think of the, the distinction.
3: All right, Abe, you're next. I appreciate everybody's comments here. And I, I, I want to say, you know, obviously, I said at the beginning, um, you know, the lack of, of local authorization is, is really critical. But John really touched on something that um, I think is is a constant struggle. We are not organized as an industry. In fact, um, when, when the legislature looks at us, and I'm sorry, I'm, I'm wearing the legislative hat here, they see one industry. They see the cannabis industry. Um, and then the unfortunate reality is the industry um, has been really quick to, to, to fraction. It's like, okay, well, I'm a manufacturer, I'm a grower. That's not how the legislature sees us. So we, we have done, um, candidly, a very poor job of organizing. And if the industry um, could really come together and coalesce around some common themes, I think we would be a lot more successful going forward. Um, and that also, begin, that also starts with two opening up local jurisdictions. Um, there are a lot of folks in industry that now have licenses, and I say it's the moat mentality. It's like once they get their license, they're kind of dug in. And I've even seen um, associations and entities in industry lobbying in Sacramento to say, oh no, we don't need to expand more retail, we're fine. Um, and so I think industry has a responsibility to step up. I understand we're all tired, trust me, I am tired. Um, but we all have a responsibility to stand up and really try to um, expand access and in, in, in open up different communities. I think we will all prosper um, by doing that, but um, the industry does need to step it up and get more
1: organized, so I appreciate those comments. All right, last but not least, Joe.
2: It, it Maybe poison pill is the wrong word, but that was the poison pill of, of Prop 64 is local control. Um, and, Uh, more cities aren't going to open up until I think two things happen. Cannabis becomes a little bit more normal through advocacy and understanding, um, and local governments understand that the transition of the uh, uh, unregulated or illicit market into the regulated market is just economics. That's all this is. We're gonna group people that used to smoke cannabis and buy it to buy it from somebody now with the permit. That's all we're trying to do. And that's the only way that, that this ultimately works is we have to move the consumer. In order to do that, the regulated market needs to be able to compete with the unregulated market.
1: But, uh, and just quickly, before we go to the next question, you know, it still sticks with me, only 30% of uh, cities and counties in California allow retail sales or, well, Well, it's it's really, it's, it's not even 30%. It's,
3: it's some form of commercial cannabis activity. So that could just be um, a testing lab, like in the case of Irvine, Irvine just allows a testing lab. So when I say 30, I'm factoring in Irvine. Um, So actually the retail um, is actually much less.
1: So, for because we're California, someone had alluded to the fact that we are typically would be our legislative people would be friendly to it, it sounds like we're not. So, is there any movement, any um, work on approaching um, these uh, jurisdictions to work on that? Because it sounds like that's a big obstacle, or you know, can anything be done? I just briefly, I mean, is there any work on that? This just sounds like if only 30%, or less than 30% of the state is allowing it, there's a whole bunch of the rest of the state where we can't uh, you know, legally sell, grow, or buy, or whatever. So is that gonna be a big deal for going forward? Uh, is there any way to increase that percentage soon? Oh, Kimberly, yeah. let's start. And well. then.
6: I say if it's Tuesday, there is a city council meeting somewhere with cannabis on the agenda or a board of supervisors, and we need more people there because it has to go city by city, county by county. That's the way it's set up, and so we need people there speaking to local government officials asking for cannabis and telling them that cannabis is already there. We voted for this, and we want it regulated and taxed. And that's the that's how local ordinances are passed. You know, people asking for them. So we need people there on Tuesdays. <laughs> cool. Um,
7: just another aspect I would think um, that's affecting, at least from the banking aspect, is really just the federal regulation of it. Um, there are some community banks who are trying to establish um, banking to allow access to capital for some of these um, industries or some some of these um, uh, businesses. However, their 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 gripe is that they can take some of the deposits and open these, these accounts, but they don't want their assets seized by the federal government because it's still federally, federally regulated. So until it, really, it becomes decriminalized on the federal level, I think we will still some, still see the stipend with regards to um, you know, increasing of marijuana business throughout California. One of the, real, the biggest uh, gripes is federal regulation and not wanting their assets seized in a very regulated state like California. So,
1: So next question at the mic. Hello, my name is Markeisha Jingles
7: and I have a scenario based question. Let's just say fast forward 2020 election and the candidate decides they're going to legalize marijuana. Big tobacco enters the scene. Was federal regulation a bigger obstacle or will big cannabis or big tobacco become a larger obstacle with regards to social um, equity as well as funding
1: for just cannabis businesses? Yeah, and pharma. And pharma. And alcohol. Okay, Joe.
2: Be careful what you wish for. It, nobody knows. And it, it could go, the industry could look very, very different once it's federally, quote-unquote, legal.
1: Khalil.
7: From a historic aspect, you know, I do a lot of um, historic, re- uh, historic uh, reading of history. Um, and there was at one point um, where, Marijuana wasn't legal up until marijuana prohibition, and what we saw was um, kind of a double-edged sword, um, and what California and partnership does not want to happen is the increased criminalization of the underground market, specifically of black and brown folks who are could be criminalized. Um, so like I said, be careful what you wish for, because when, when it does become regulated, we don't want the weed industry to be another industry of sugar. Liquor, marijuana, um, liquor and tobacco, as you said, where black people have this have disproportionately suffered um, from the illegal market and the illegal the criminalization of marijuana, and now it's being um, commodified and very prolific with regards to profits. Um, so, like we said, we have to be careful with what we wish for. We can get something like that where we are seeing a lot of um, um, this profit made off um, this substance that has been made illegal for our our people, really. So.
6: And if our industry has had a hard time transitioning in California, I can, I'm really kind of like fearful of federal legalization because, you know, big business is taking over every other industry and it's going to happen to our industry too. And so I'm cherishing every moment we have working together with my friends and doing what we're doing because it's not going to last forever. And, um, you know, big businesses out there just waiting. They have lobbyists, they're preparing, they're making their plans now.
5: I'm very cynical on on this issue uh, because it's happening right in front of us and I don't think we can stop it. I mean, if you look at the, there's many very large multinational organizations that are already putting their chips on the table. They're uh, largely, Constellation Brands is, you know, investing billions of dollars and uh, placing it in publicly traded uh, um, uh, cannabis companies. And if you want to really think and think, uh, you know, uh, the ex-speaker of the house, John Boehner is on the board of, of Harvest, and uh, if you want to get Read, read between the lines and get really c- cynical here, what could be happening, and what I think is happening, is uh, these companies are putting their chips on their table, getting their feet in the doors right where they need them, laying it all out on the table, and you know what? The Trump administration is gonna legalize to get votes, and all of these multinationals are gonna swoop right in very, very quickly. Uh, you know That's worst case scenario, but I think we're looking at that.
1: Most case scenario, yeah. Anyone else on this sofa? all right thank you next question at the mic please
9: hi thank you for letting me speak my name is Mindy Galloway i'm CEO of Kamiya so i've been on this funding journey with Kimberly for um, a long time actually and i have a, a question about some of the solutions that i've heard tonight are about partnerships with different businesses so kind of overcoming that hurdle and then partnering in incubators or other businesses. And the problem that I've had is that coming from um, my own personal culture of heart-centered business models, sustainability, and being more stewardship versus hierarchy, it's very hard to find those good businesses to partner with that share the same values. And so if you can provide any input with any um, suggestions on how to find those people, and second of all, like we said, big businesses coming, there might be those people that are not good, and is there any policy in place to protect the people in the equity? program from partnering with the wrong people and those people not living up to the expectations that they are getting their tax breaks for.
1: All right, so we'll start around the sofa again with Khalil.
7: Well, because you mentioned equity, I'm going to chime in. Um, Right now, we're working to kind of um, boost those protections for the CORE participants as well. Um, Going through some of the people who have gone through the CORE program or are going through the CORE program, they're seeing that partnering with other um, people who may be malicious, um, there's really no benefit until you realize that they are malicious. Um, So right now there is no safety net right now for CORE participants and that's what we're working on. We're going through a lot of things that kind of, you know, we're revamping the CORE program to extend even more. Zip codes in Sacramento, um, but even pro- provide more protections for the core participants as well because that is needed and that's the thing that we don't yeah. want. It's predatory. I grew up in
9: Del Paso Heights when I was younger, so I actually do qualify for the core program. Yeah. So, just from being in this industry, um, you know, I'm trying to transition and and getting our license and doing everything. I've met a lot of people along the way, and I just want to make sure that those protections will be in place.
7: Definitely, you are, and you are not the only one. And I, um, that's something we are taking seriously with regards to. Interactions with predatory partners um, who want to use you maliciously for extra capital, extra business, and whatever they need to get you know a step ahead in this industry. So yes, something I will be we'll, we'll, we will be analyzing and taking care of for you in the future. Okay. Thank
1: you. Yeah, I think Kimberly and John, you have good uh, feedback or advice on this in terms of partnering up and finding the right one. So Kimberly, how about you?
6: Um. Thank you for bringing up that point, Mindy, because that is happening to a lot of equity applicants. Um, I was on an epi- equity application for a woman-owned business, and as soon as they got the permit, um, the guys dropped me and my partner. We didn't dot all of our I's and cross all of our T's, we should've got a lawyer, but he was an equity applicant in, o- in Emeryville, and it was a really bad situation. He totally like used and abused us to get that permit, and he has it. Um, an equity permit so ironic, But I think that we have to think about those things ahead of time. One time I was listening to a panel of lawyers, and they're like, you write contracts for the worst-case scenario. You have to think of the worst-case scenario going into whatever you're going into. And I'm like a Pollyanna. I'm like, best-case scenario, everything. So um, I think we definitely need to spread that word to equity applicants and make them aware right away, like, there are... um, you know, uh, not because they have money means they're good people, right? We, we, there's lots of good businesses, but they don't have a, <laughs> the money. And then there's some good businesses with money. And then there's a lot of businesses with money that aren't good people. So, <laughs> you know, we have to really encourage equity applicants to really do their due diligence before um, signing anything. John
5: yeah i I agree with that i'm 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 a strong believer that you know you should you should date a long time before you get married so uh um yeah you know a handshake and a look in the eye really means a lot. Sit down for coffee, spend time with people that you're going to partner with, and I mean spend a lot of time with them, and I think that's really the, the best we can do. Uh, you can't really ask the government to make sure that your relationships work out. That's kind of, pr- yeah. that's well, hard to regulate. But if
9: benefits from it, so I think people might be, a you know, like I mis- agree.
5: If there's yeah. fraud and that sort of mm-hmm. thing, absolutely, but you know, still. Just get to know who who you're working with, and then also let me. You know, there, there's some pessimism around here, but I do want to say there's also a lot of optimism. I mean, this is a great market. It's a thriving business. We're in a growth industry. There's a ton of opportunity. And when people ask me what they should do when they if they were to enter the, the market today, I, I the, really my my one piece of advice is just just pick one thing. Focus on it, be very, very strategic and execute on that one thing and uh, there is a lot of room for people who who practice that in this industry.
4: I would say just make sure if things are important to you like they make it into whatever agreements that with your partners um, if you're an equity applicant and you're partnering with a somebody who wouldn't qualify because it's a good you know scenario like Again, get it into writing. If they violate it, find a lawyer, bring a shareholder derivative action. That is an action that if you hold equity, but the people that govern the corporation are in violation of their fiduciary duties, you can bring an action and get a court to enjoin them, remove them from the board, those kinds of measures. You do need legal help on that, but if it's a way of Getting those people out the bad actors out or at least enjoined from continuing to do it So you can wrestle some control back or at least put the community on alert that they're not good people They're not worthy of that, you know equity permit uh, Because of they screwed you over that that's something you can do to protect yourself and kind of go on the offensive and, and, and make sure That you're protected in that way
1: all right, Amy. Last last reply to this. I question. don't know. Yeah, I don't
3: know how, if I have too much to add, other than to say that, um, as I alluded earlier, there's substantial investment right now at the state level, and I would agree that the the state isn't going to solve all these problems. But I think your point and, and the timing of your point is is a, is is good because the state is right now developing some best practices and some guidelines around equity programming. Obviously those this will mostly be uh, developed at the local level, but the state will be providing funding and technical assistance funding will be one of them. So I think exploring this notion of, of predatory activities and practices that seek to take advantage of social equity applicants is probably something that needs to be considered as the state is, is, is developing those best practices and so, um, we'll certainly take that feedback um, back to GoBiz, which is the entity that's going to be charged with that. So I think it's a point well taken and
1: timely. Thank you. Just, just quickly, is GoBiz um, chaired by Lenny Mendaka? Yes, indeed. Oh, OK. He will be a future California Groundbreakers Q&A, so we'll ask him about that. Thank you, Mindy. Thank you. And then finally, we, our final question at the mic for tonight.
10: Hi, I'm Courtney. Thanks, everyone, for this. Um, My question is about California cannabis culture um, and what's happening to it. So my introduction to the industry was in Calaveras advocating before they shut down 750 registered grows, which was a crazy thing to watch. Um, And in the process of being involved with them, I met a bunch of farmers, obviously, and the depth of their knowledge of cannabis and its abilities and how you grow it and all is is not to be dismissed and i think it's being lost and so my question is when we're talking about kind of safeguarding against big business and all you know the questions about how do we get the illicit market um, to become regulated um, is there conversations about how to safeguard the people who created California cannabis culture, which is so separate from cannabis everywhere else, um, who know it very intrinsically because it's like their family business, um, who are being shut out. So I'm thinking of like Appalachians, I'm thinking of a farm to pipe movement, or like I'm thinking of any kind of creative um, endeavor, um, actively pursuing alter- marijuana as alternatives to pharma. Are these, are these conversations happening to kind of safeguard people who have created this culture that is at risk of, of being swept away.
1: All right, let's start with Gabriel.
4: Okay. I'm trying to think of it from a commercial perspective because with the legalization of, of personal use and the ability to gift, you can still have like a free collective model if you wanna keep the culture and exchange of you know, homegrown cannabis alive. Um, I'm, I'm trying to think of how, how it gets preserved uh, amidst all the challenges we've talked about tonight. How do you preserve the culture? And what's remarkable to me is, even though there were other states that went legal, like California blazed a trail in 1996. I remember I was in high school and I was doing like a AP civics debate. I was like, I'm debating like medical cannabis. And like, that's how long at least there was a recognition that people needed to use this for medicine and there were people that could grow it for those people that were sick and a lot of that's been lost um and i don't know how to to reconcile it with with the commercial space other than let's use our personal liberties to keep that culture alive i suppose by having dinner clubs or collectives that aren't about making money but just sharing the plant and the culture
6: kimberly Thank you so much, awesome question. Um, as an advocate of our industry, this is another thing. I am like really positive, I'm just feeling like I'm talking about all this negative stuff today. But um, it is um, going away fast. And um, actually the tagline of Kamiya, our company, is um, preserving cannabis artistry and reviving cannabis hi- history. And um, no, I said it wrong, didn't I? <laughs> reviving cannabis artistry and preserving cannabis history. And um, it's up to the leaders in our current industry to do this, to bring other people up with us. Because new people coming in might care, a small percentage, and that's awesome if they do, and I want to work with those people. But the majority of them don't care as much as our current industry does. So when we um, move forward, we have to bring other people with us. And um, that's why Kamia is bringing in all small farmers and small manufacturers to work with. And that's why, at A Therapeutic Alternative, we purchase from small manufacturers and small farmers, people who are from California, legacy, who care about The environment and advocacy first and um, you know we're voting with our dollar and so our industry really has to the leaders in our industry have to stay firm if we want to um, you know preserve that history
1: all right I'm gonna ask the the final question for each of you it ties into cannabis culture I guess in a way I was curious about like the biggest growing markets I heard actually when I went to a, a therapeutic alternative recently I saw a lot of people over age, I, honestly, age 60. So I heard baby boomers a big market. So I was wondering in terms of the biggest growing market products, you know, again, I read an e-study that pre-rolls, edibles, vaporizers are the biggest sellers, or growing fast. So I guess now that we're leaving 2019 and going into 2020 in a new decade, a couple of sentences on, I don't know, uh, in terms of what's gonna be growing, um, Getting very popular, biggest market, something that we should all keep in mind in terms of uh, a business owner or a consumer. Um, What are the trends that are going to be, you think, happening in this industry in 2020? A couple quick sentences. I'm going to start with Joe.
2: So the baby boomers, biggest, fastest growing market, but let's be honest, they didn't start smoking cannabis. They quit smoking cannabis a while back, (laughs) and now they've taken it up again. I think uh, live resin pens, um, uh, I think, is going to be an emerging um, that will hopefully, um, uh, maybe not hopefully, but I think start displacing uh, the distillate pens.
1: Brief description of a live resin pen, just brief.
2: It's it's a it's a full full spectrum um, extract of of, of cannabis um, rather than a distillate of, of of the oil, which is which which has to have the terpenes added back into it, which are um, largely artificial and, yeah. Amy.
3: I'm probably the least qualified to answer this question on the panel. Maybe (laughs) legislative trends or something. (laughs) Well, what I I can tell you is, um, obviously the data is is pointing to to vape pens. Um, That that is certainly, uh, that that particular segment of the market is is growing quite rapidly. Um, But what I've also seen in terms of just policy debates, Two years ago, I had a legislature come, legislator come to me and say, "Oh my gosh, we have to protect CBD, whether it's cannabis-derived or hemp-derived CBD. We have to we have to preserve it, and there's no incentive to grow CBD because everyone is looking at high THC products." And that was two years ago, and in fact, that is not the case. I mean, there's a very significant investment in um, CBD and the and, and the non psychoactive properties of the cannabis plant. And I think you're seeing that in terms of the products that are that are coming online. And that certainly is something that the baby boomers, boomers, including my own mother, I probably shouldn't have admitted that, um, but my own mother are, are, are very interested in. And I'm also seeing that in, in the younger generations as well, um, is that they don't want to experience the psychoactive properties of the plant, but in, 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 in instead are looking at CBD as an alternative. So I think we're, we're seeing a, a, a very, very rapid expansion of that market.
1: Gabriel.
4: Um, well, one of them I'm, um, I think is gonna be big, more on the hemp side is is hemp bioplastics and, and the way that you can use that as a plant-based alternative to petroleum-based plastics. Um, so I see that just gaining massive uh, traction in the next few years the other thing the other question i have for the market is like where do we go with you know based on what amy just said like thc levels some people don't want them but the weed heads want it high like john's selling pre-rolls of like 26 28 of like Will that stop if people are and then the, the the means of production and 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 the efficiencies and the R&D in the industry is like staggering and people coming up with new ways to ingest it to have different effects. Um, I, I don't like the sky's the limit, I guess, but I'm curious to see where we top out on THC levels and what percentage of people are light in the market want the high versus mid or low.
5: John. Uh, so if you look at the demographics of cannabis consumers today, it's largely uh, individuals from 24 to 34, about 60% male. And then if you look at the cannabis, the product breakdown, uh, about 60% of the products sold are uh, flowers, prepackaged eighths, and pre-rolls. And there's some Synergy between those those products and that demographic and what we need to do and what we're trying to do as an industry is find Incremental buyers. We don't want to replace the existing buyers by any means we want to grow new buyers and the way we're going to do that is by uh, developing innovative products And so you're gonna see a lot of innovative products over the next uh, two, three, four, five years. You're also gonna see a lot of innovation around how the products are displayed to you and how they're delivered to you. Um, You know, we we hear about the death of retail in the US. Um, Cannabis presents a a huge opportunity to revitalize retail in a completely different model. So I think you're gonna see the revitalization of cannabis retail and uh, that joins quite a bit with a direct to consumer model around these new innovative products. So that's what I'm excited for.
6: Kimberly. I'm so excited about the science. There's over 100 cannabinoids in cannabis, active ingredients, and uh, many, many terpenes, I think about 40 terpenes. And we're only putting, gosh, about seven cannabinoids and seven terpenes on the market in products. And sometimes we are not even looking at terpenes. And sometimes we're only putting out products that are just THC or CBD. And then we have ratios added on top of that. I mean, the amount of products and the holes in the market Are endless and I cannot wait to start getting more scientists involved and really seeing genetics progress to grow high THCV. You have to try it, okay, it's amazing. And um, (laughs) other high um, THCV, THCA, CBN, CBD, CBG, CBC, like and all the different ratios, I mean it's endless. I don't know what's going to happen next year, but people now have scientists on their um, and geneticists on their boards, and it's going to be interesting to see what happens. Khalil, last word.
7: Oh man, you said you were the least qualified. I'm probably the least. I don't smoke it. I don't have any friends that sell it or smoke it like that. Um, I have you're right. <laughs> 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 um, but I would look at least uh, legislatively. I would look at the you know local municipal uh, local government aspect of hemp. Um, definitely, um, that's a market that's coming up. Um, that they, they really don't know how to handle it because they can't. You know, municipalities and bureaucrats can't tell the difference between a hemp plant and a you know a TAC plant. They really don't know, so they don't know how to handle that right now. Um, so that to be something that's coming up with regards to legislative policies um, and even policing and surveillance of. Um, hemp versus THC and you know cannabis industries and cannabis storefronts, cannabis cultivation, all that, all of that that circum um, that uh, is involved with regards to that um, industry. Um, that's all I could really have because I don't really have much for the <laughs> other than that with regards to product and consumption of uh, cannabis. So that's it. Thank you.
1: Before we wrap it up, I want to give a shout-out to someone who I forgot to thank at the beginning, Ken Barnes, our California Groundbreakers board member, who stepped off a plane from Hong Kong, I guess, recently, just today, and came here and showed up and checked people in. So thank you very much, Ken. Thank you, panelists, for a great discussion. Thank you, audience, for a great uh, q and I'm sure we'll revisit this again, but we'll end it here. So good night. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to California Groundbreakers. Tonight's Policy in a Pint conversation about California's legal cannabis industry was held on August 28, 2019, at Fitsum Studios in Sacramento. Thanks to our panelists Kimberly Cargyle, Joe Devlin, Kamal Ferguson, Gabriel Garcia, Amy Jenkins, and John Oram for the great conversation. Thanks also to Fitsum Studios owner Marco Gizar for hosting this event. Special thanks goes to Groundbreakers board member, Ken Barnes, and to our volunteers from Spain, Marta Casado and Pepe Fonseca, for helping set up this event. And also to our regular volunteer extraordinaires, Rodrigo Ramirez and Nate Graham, for helping make this event run smoothly. To Roostaller beer owner and Groundbreakers board member, J.E. Pano, for his continued support. Thanks to Caleb Clark at Kickstart Audio for recording and producing this podcast. And of course, thanks to you for listening. Find out when our next event is by going to our website, CaliforniaGroundbreakers.org.